Hey everybody, Bina007 here to discuss some of the films out in the UK next weekend. One of the films I'm really eagerly anticipating is the Clint Eastwood real-life drama The 317 to Paris, which is about the incident where American citizens found that there was a terrorist on the train from, I believe, Brussels to Paris and had to wrestle him to the ground. So that sounds like a really good, well-made thriller. Of the other films that are out this week, I'm going to review The Mercy, which again is a true life drama about a British guy who tried to sail around the world in a race and kind of went mad in the process. And then the Paul Thomas Anderson film Phantom Thread, which has garnered lots of awards and for which Daniel Day-Lewis is up for an Oscar. So let's begin with The Mercy. I was really excited about this film because I've been interested in the story for a long while. It's the latest in a long line of treatments of the infamous 1968-69 round-the-world yacht race called called The Golden Globe, and it was sponsored by a British newspaper called The Sunday Times. I think it really captures the imagination, as so many of these films do, about people climbing Everest or whatever, because it's a very pure challenge between man and the elements. To sail a boat by yourself with very rudimentary equipment back in the 1960s over many months. So it's both a test of the boat and whether it can stay in one piece and of the man and his ability to deal with extreme isolation and threat and peril on a daily basis. I have a sort of personal fascination with the type of personality that's driven to face such challenges. And this race is full of stories. So all the sailors had kind of quite interesting times of it. And this particular one is, I think, the most notorious or infamous. I think what's particularly fascinating about this race is that anyone could enter and there was no sort of prior test or you know you didn't have to demonstrate that you were a good sailor so you would have these very professional yachtsmen up against rank amateurs and I think it kind of appeals to that sort of can-do spirit. One of those men was Donald Crowhurst who was a British um, engineer sort of self-taught electronic engineer who had invented a very nifty device that could tell where you were and would help you navigate while at sea. But he wasn't really a professional sailor. He'd never done anything other than what you might call Sunday sailing around the coast. And he'd certainly never been in open water. And not only was he sort of possibly ill-prepared, but he was also under tremendous pressure because his small business wasn't doing well. And he was funded by a local entrepreneur called Stanley Best and his house was forfeit. Stanley Best had agreed to fund the building of the yacht. But if Donald Crowhurst didn't complete the race or go a certain distance, then Best would take the house. So really, it wasn't just that Crowhurst wanted to win the race to get the publicity to make his company go well. But if he didn't complete the race, he was going to be bankrupt. And he had a wife and three kids, four kids, actually, I think. And, you know, the the pressure was tremendous. Crowhurst in the film is portrayed by Colin Firth and is shown in a very sympathetic light. He's very charismatic. He's a real family man. He's got real smarts. But he's evidently out of his depth and preparation. And there's a bit of a sense of foreboding as we come to the start of the race. The boat builders can't get the first choice materials. His design is completely untested. And although the kind of USP of his yacht was going to be all the kind of cutting edge electronics he was going to put in on it, he actually didn't have the time to build any of it or install it. 
And chiefly, the one thing he was going to build was an electronic kind of alert system with a system of pulleys and buoys that was going to stop the trimaran sinking. Because one of the key things about sailing a trimaran is it's very hard to right itself once it's capsized. Anyway, we go towards the start of the race. Money's very tight. Everyone's super stressed. The BBC has given him some recording equipment that's going to become very important as we go forward. And the omens are bad. The champagne bottle will not crack when hit against the hull of the boat. And the test voyage, which should have taken three days, takes two weeks. So... It's an appalling situation. What the film does is it shows perhaps the unspoken tension. There's a scene the night before he set sail where he's with his wife, played by Rachel Weiss, and he's just in tears. And you can almost see that if the wife had said don't go, maybe he wouldn't have done, but, oh, you know, she doesn't want to stop him fulfilling his dreams. I suppose the second act of the film shows the early part of the voyage where Crowhurst, against all the odds, is sailing well. And it shows him to be very logical and smart and and problem solving on this boat that doesn't have any spare parts and doesn't have the pumping lead that he needs. But you can tell that he's not making the speeds that he needs to come in near the top of the race. And so at some point off the coast of Africa, he makes the first, I don't know, questionable decision, and that is to fake a speed record. Um, But I think it's very important to know that at this point he hasn't decided to fake the entire voyage. And what the film does very nicely is show kind of the way in which you descend, that one small lie turns into another and the possibility makes itself felt to you. And there is this beautiful move as we get into Act 3 where he does decide to genuinely fake the entire voyage. He realises that neither he nor his boat are going to make it around the world. So he starts creating a set of false logbooks that show a fictional voyage around the world which actually is incredibly hard to do because you've got to predict where you know where the stars are and what your speeds would be and actually arguably it's harder than doing the sailing well that's not true but very very hard to do and then what he decides to do is use very enigmatic radio messages that suggest progress but aren't allowing people to pin him down too much and this is where it gets really really awful for him because he's hired this slightly slippery press agent called Ronald Holworth who's played by David Thewlis and where David Thewlis's character sees ambiguity he makes a <laughs> he decides to sort of take the best possible of all the available options as where Crowhurst really is and that starts to cause some suspicion So I'm not going to say very much more about what happens in this film, because although it's a true story that happened, you know, many, many years ago, I think if you haven't heard about it, then how Donald Crowhurst manages to get out of his predicament is really surprising and emotionally affecting. And the person I watched this film with on preview hadn't ever heard of the race and and was deeply, deeply affected by it. So I want to keep it ambiguous. For those of you who do know the story, you should rest assured that it's told in a very um, sympathetic and, and truthful manner. So it has a great deal of respect for the story. And I think that story is one that resonates beyond people who are interested in, in yachting and the history of yachting, because really it's about how much a man can take and how much morally he can cope with when he's under huge financial pressure and when cut off from the people who he loves. And I think one of the, the key problems that Crowhurst faces is that because in those days when you were radioing to shore, you were listened into by everyone on that line, he cannot have a private conversation with his wife. And just that one conversation might have kept him morally righted, but he, he can't do that. 
I think where The Mercy succeeds as a film is because of the central performance of Colin Firth, who I think shows a range and nuance that makes this perhaps his finest performance since Single Man, for which he won an Oscar. It's a very sympathetic, harrowing portrait of a really good, intelligent, earnest man who just needs solace from his wife and can't get it. I think the film also really benefits from being shot on the open sea and on celluloid. And, you know, director James Marsh, who also directed The Theory of Everything, I think has gone to tremendous trouble to give us that feeling of being at sea, which I don't think you can replicate in a tank. And there are one or two very, very beautiful scenes here and beautiful imagery of being at sea, which is um, very, you know, really worth seeing. I think where the film falls down is in the supporting characters. They're not really given much to do beyond being caricatures or sort of one note turns. I think Rachel Weiss is just there to be the deeply sympathetic wife. And, you know, it's a very one note character. She also has a slightly bizarre scene at the end, which I think is rather anachronistic in how she expresses her disdain for the press and just feels a bit like a false note from the screenwriters. And I think David Thewlis is just very much the evil villain as the press agent Holworth, you know, just slippery and untrustworthy and doesn't really get much to do. We have uh, Simon McBurney, who's a great actor, cast as Sir Francis Chichester, but he's very underused in the film, even though he was the one person who, from the very start of that speed record, suspected that Crowhurst was up to no good. I also feel that perhaps the decision just to focus on Crowhurst is a bit of a mistake. There's a lack of context in this film, which I think, although it's very sympathetic, I think that if you know about what the other sailors are going through, you realise that this isn't just the story of one man with a moral failure, because all of them, all of them became a little bit mentally unmoored. So you have, you know, you might think that Crowhurst is hopelessly amateur and why did he enter? But there was a sailor called Che Blythe who literally had to learn to sail as he went and soon dropped out and was even more incompetent. There's also uh, Bernard Moitessier, who was one of the most skilled sailors and would have won the race probably. But as he was coming back round um, to the Atlantic and just had to sail back up north to England, decided to go round the world again because he was so mentally in the zone and just didn't want to have to deal with people. And maybe that's too difficult and would have taken too much time to explore, but I think it's a real shame that the screenwriter Scott Burns, who wrote The Bourne Ultimatum, uh, missed a trick. I also feel, for those of us who know the Crowhurst story, that you know he had a, a real philosophy of life as being a kind of game and a race to be won. And that if you knew more about that at the start of the race, that some of, some of what happens later would make more sense and become more predictable and easier to understand. Overall, though, I did really enjoy the film. I love this story, and I think Firth is really superb. I would also commend to you, if you find yourself interested in it, a 2006 documentary called Deep Water, which covers the entire race and has interviews with many who sailed in it and family of those who sailed, and is really, really fascinating. And I'd also really heartily recommend a book on Donald Crowhurst called by the Sunday Times journalists Nicholas Tomlin and Ron Hall, who covered the race. Another really good book is by Chris Eakin, and he covers the entire race too. So I hope you decide to go and watch The Mercy. It really is a very unique and interesting film, and of one of the great... So I really do hope you check out The Mercy. It's it's a sort of mid-budget British film that deserves support and, and for Colin Firth's performance I think is really worth seeing. It has a running time of 101 minutes and is rated 12A in the UK for infrequent strong language. It's released here and Ireland and in Australia on February the 9th.
interestingly, I'm just looking at IMDb, it doesn't have a specific release date for the US. It just says 2018 in some vague manner. But I do hope it gets a release there. It really deserves to be seen more widely. Okay, so now on to Phantom Thread, which is one of the most anticipated films of the year for me because it's by Paul Thomas Anderson. And I just think he makes films that are uniquely superb in how they're constructed and in their daring with what they're going to do with cinema and they're very cine literate he has a deep deep understanding of cinema history and I think all of that comes to bear in this film which is so strange and so slippery it's really hard to categorize you know it's genre tone tensions shift and evolve over the two-hour running time and I found myself as I was watching it thinking Is this a melodramatic period romance like The Beguiled? Is it a Hitchcockian psychological thriller? Because there's lots of elements that remind one of Rebecca in particular. Is it a ghost story? Is it a fetishistic romance like The Duke of Burgundy? It really has lots of these elements. And I think in any other director's hands would feel very piecemeal and tonally choppy and hard to get into. But in the hands of Paul Thomas Anderson feels like a very coherent and tightly constructed whole. It's a film that I think really does delight and repay the audience who who do have a knowledge of film history. Um, And yet it's something very much of its own. The movie stars famously Daniel Day-Lewis as Reynolds Woodcock, who is a 1950s fashion designer who lives and works in this very grand London house, complete with royal clientele. As the film opens, he's presented as a kind of domineering, egomaniacal man surrounded by sycophantic enablers that's become vilified in the Me Too movement. And he really is tremendously cruel and narcissistic and overbearing in this film and quite unlikable. He has all of these strict rules and all these rules basically are about allowing him as the genius creator to have the perfect peace and quiet he needs to to make beautiful dresses. And the thing that he really fears above all is distraction. So this perfect world is curated by his very devoted sister Cyril, played by Leslie Manville, who any of you who've watched Ken Loach films will know very well. And she's there to handle the financial side of the business, smooth over relationships with the clients, but also to to neatly dismiss the young girls that Reynolds takes as his muse when they become tiresome. And as the film opens, we see her basically get rid of one young woman, played, played by Camilla Rutherford, and almost immediately for Reynolds to find yet another muse and move her into the house. He picks her up in a seaside uh, restaurant, mostly apparently on the grounds that she looks quite biddable and can remember his vast breakfast order. And the theme of food and nourishment is very big in this film. At first, um, both Cyril and Alma seem to be very much at his service and to do whatever he wants. And the young Alma, played by Vicky Creeps, who's very superb, takes orders and is essentially little more than an inanimate model hanging on his every word. And as we see her, you know, annoy him over breakfast with a very loud scraping of butter on toast, you think, oh, she's going to follow the same path as the Camilla Rutherford character with a very polite uh, booting out of the house by Cyril. So the beauty of the story is that it utterly subverts our expectations of who is truly in control and indeed who the true protagonists of the film are. And I think with all the awards given to Daniel Day-Lewis, you sort of think it's going to be his film. And of course it is, but it's also very much about the two women and the the fights that they have between themselves. And of course, there's no actual fighting. It's a very quiet, tense, all done with a contemptuous raise of an eyebrow and utter politeness kind of a film. But this, this total fight for power that they have within that house. 
Indeed, in a sense, Cyril, although he seems like an... Uh, indeed, as much as Reynolds seems like the sort of egomaniac in control of everything, the irony is he's surrounded by women who tell him what to do. Cyril makes him be polite to the clients he doesn't like. Uh, Alma, it turns out, is not biddable, but very quietly, very strongly, has a will of her own. And even all the seamstresses in the house are more in control with Reynolds and have to sort of, you know, pick up pieces and ensure that his business continues. So from my perspective, the principal tension and interest in this film is not between Reynolds and Alma, but actually between Alma and Cyril. And I think both of them are vying to be essentially the mother figure in his life because he's obsessed with having lost his mother early on. He imagines he sees her ghost. And I think there's something metaphorical in his constant ravenous hunger. And it's interesting that the first time Alma meets him, she slips a note to him, which calls him a hungry boy. And I think both women are struggling to become that dominant mother-like figure. And only when that has been established can you then go to conquer the man himself, which is done in this amazing scene at the end of the film, um, which is all done around a cookery scene, fitting with the food metaphor. And what I love about it is there's very little dialogue, but it's all in facial expression where you realise characters may or may not know what exactly is going on and how far they are going to acquiesce and let it continue. I think it's really no coincidence that the most passionate kiss we see between Alma and Reynolds happens in a very context of a very coy and ambiguous film when those relationships and the power dynamic is finally acknowledged and out in the open on both sides. Everything about this movie is first class, from the costumes to the interior design to the evocation of the British seaside in 1950s ballrooms. It's just stunning. The acting is also superb. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is fantastic, of course, and gets the awards. But the two women, Leslie Manville and Vicky Creeps, match him absolutely turn by turn with performances of real subtlety and brilliance. The script, I think, is also fascinating and really funnier than one would expect from Anderson. You know, there are some really good laugh out loud scenes. The only scene that for me struck a bum note is when Reynolds and Alma look through a client's deep distress before her wedding day and mock and punish her for her drunkenness. And that was cruel. It was meant to be cruel. I think it's also meant to be very, very funny, but I just found it absolutely devastating and really did lessen my interest in the characters. And this is ultimately my only real criticism of the film. When you consider the real talent that Anderson, his cast and crew have brought to this subject matter, um, and you do get this amazing psychological drama out of it, but it ultimately feels like quite a slight story when measured up against films like There Will Be Blood and The Master. It almost seems trivial. Like, do we really care? So in a sense, at the end of it, I would... uh, just say it's it's beautiful and it's stunning and it's fascinating while you watch it but ultimately I suspect it might be a little bit disposable which sounds harsh nonetheless I think Phantom Thread is a film that demands to be seen because Paul Thomas Anderson is such a great director and indeed at the cinema if you can get to a 70 millimeter print that's what you should be going for it has a running time of 130 minutes and is rated R in the USA and 15 in the UK for strong language. It opened last year in the USA and opened in the UK and Ireland this weekend. So that's it for today. Whatever you watch at the cinema, I hope you have a great deal of fun. Thank you very much for listening.